HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. The Houndsman XP podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsman of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsman. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up here! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week do you spend out As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. <laughs> On this episode of the Houndsman XP Podcast, I sit down with Mr. Tony Beals of Michigan. Tony has been very active in hounds his entire life. Squirrel dogs, Lycas, all kinds of things. But the the reason I wanted to sit down with Tony is I wanted to give Tony a shout out. This was originally going to be a Memorial Day podcast. I was going to chop it up and use parts of it and do some fancy stuff. But after sitting down and talking with Tony, I wanted to feature him in an in a, an individual episode. Tony's one of those guys that jumps in and is not afraid to get involved, even 
as you're going to hear during the podcast, with terminal cancer, he's not afraid to keep pressing on. We talk a lot about military service and the challenges that our military members have staying involved with hounds and hunting when um, you're going to hear it. You're going to hear how we talk about that. But um, it's a great episode. I'm honored to have a guy like Tony Beals on this podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. The old South Dog Box is rocking. Let's get the tailgate down. It's time to dump the box. Briar Creek Kennels is your complete hound hunting outfitter. Boots, lights, collars, and tracking equipment. Dog boxes, kennel supplies, collars, clothes, squalors. Whew, they have it all. Briar Creek Kennel is a Garmin and dog tree dealer. Owner Chris Girth will ensure Briar Creek Kennel customers will get top-of-the-industry customer service. Whether you purchase from their website or you find them at a major coonhound event, Chris and his staff will share expert knowledge and experience about every product they offer. Chris Girth is a top competitor and breeder of hounds. He knows what gear you need to be successful. Look for Briar Creek Kennels on the web for a complete online store or look at their fully stocked trailer at any major coonhound event. Briar Creek Kennels, offering a hound hunting public generations of excellence. All right, so I'm I'm here with Tony Beals, and uh, Tony, I'm glad you came down. We've been trying to plan this for a couple of weeks, yeah, and uh, get some things set up, and and uh, it just so happened we got to meet at a dog event, which was convenient. That's a good thing. Yeah, it's a little bit hot in this building, but uh, I got the sweat-proof mics out today. So. Okay, good deal. <laughs> uh, I I sweat profusely when I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, I used to just sweat. I think God put all the sweat glands in my body right in my head. So it was just, it was horrendous. We'd be out on those long marches and stuff and, and wearing Kevlar and my stuff would just be soaked all the way down the front. And the corpsman would come by and look at me. He's like, are you all right? And I'd tell him, I'd say, when I stop sweating, ask me that, you know, as long as I'm sweating, I'm good. I've got a hyperactive cooling system going on here. When I finished basic training, I dropped four pant sizes. No kidding. Yeah. See, I didn't. I went in, when I went into boot camp, uh, I weighed 170 pounds. And when I graduated from boot camp, I was 172 pounds. You stayed the same pretty I did. much. I did. Yeah. I think some of the composition changed a little bit. But, uh, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I really didn't change that much. Yep. Now I can't say that. <laughs> Neither me. Towards the end of my career, it was... The Fat Boy program, I had to watch my weight pretty good. So I, I tried to put on my dress blues for my daughter's wedding because she married a Marine. So I was going to wear my dress blues to the to the wedding as well. That was a pipe dream. I was going to have to buy all new dress blues, and I thought, man, where did the where did my discipline go? Oh, I know. I I can fit in mine now, but a couple years ago it was. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna not step, good. I'm gonna step right over here for just a second and grab this bottle. Okay. Yeah, you know, and I'm not. I'm not an old man by any means. I'm only 53 years old, but but uh, 
things, gravity takes over and starts doing stuff to your body and moving stuff in places that. Uh... <laughs> yes. I retired when I was 56. And I went downhill from there. <laughs> I was doing good to keep up with the younger guys and, yeah. and well, that. But let's let's talk real briefly about um, you know your your hunting. You know you're the president of the National Plot Hound Association. Yes, I, yep. But you've also been involved in squirrel dogs and squirrel hunting clubs. Your local clubs. You know, let's talk about all of that starting out. Okay. Yeah. Um, I started out. After I came off active duty the first time, that was about 1984, got involved in my local coon club, even though when I was younger, my dad would take me out to it. Um, Dave Humble, a plot guy, got me going, and I just started helping out, um, went through a few dog issues. Yeah, how old were you when you started hunting? Oh, I was... Basically, my dad started taking me out when I was six years old. Yeah. In that. And when we moved to where we, where I grew up there, the neighbors coon hunted. Uh-huh. And we're talking the lanterns, the six-cell lights. Right. Uh, whatever dogs they had. So I was always going hunting. Mm-hmm. Now, I may not have had a gun or anything like that. Uh, I didn't really get a gun to go hunting until I was 12 years old. That was the legal age back then. Mm-hmm. So, but I've always been going in yeah. that. And my neighbor got my dad into coon hunting. Uh, we always had beagles for rabbit hunting. Uh, our first squirrel dog was my mom's Pekingese Chihuahua Pomeranian cross that followed my dad back in the woods, <laughs> you know. So... You were out there hunting lions and tigers and bears. With oh, that yeah, 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 big time. Hey, let me adjust this mic for you just a little bit. Okay. There you go. All right. Got it. There we go. So Kind of blowing out the speakers here. Yep. That's just mic placement. So kind of long story short, you know, my younger brother is four years younger than me. He took to the deer hunting. Yeah. I took to the hounds. So you grew, you've grown up with the hounds your oh, entire yes. life. Yes, yep. Yeah. And other than... Times when I took off for active duty in the military, you know, I didn't have any dogs, and then I'd have to start back over. But mm-hmm. it's always been about the dogs for me yeah, and that. And the people in the dog world, because I ended up running our local coon club for, oh, four or five years. Which club is that? That would be Michigan United Coon Hunters Club in Michigan. Okay. We call it the Maple Rapids Club. And there that. you go. Um, but then I got my Master Hounds license. Uh, and I started helping out other clubs, you know, and that, and it's continued. Uh, then when I finally came back after I retired, um, I got involved in the state association, and it kicked over. I was president, vice president, back and forth. Which and state association? Mich- Michigan State Coon Hunters Association. Okay, because there's Michigan Sporting Dog Alliance. What is that? Michigan? Uh, uh Michigan, well, my mind just went blank. That's all right. And then you got the Hunting Michigan, Dog Federation. That's it, Hunting Dog yep. Federation with Mike Mike Thorman. Yep. And then you got the Michigan Coon Hunters. And there's all kinds of other split, yeah, and, split off breeds. And, you know, pretty much towards the end, as I got older, uh, if they need to master hounds, especially for the RQEs, for uh, UKC events, mm-hmm. I would do it because it's getting so 
people don't want to be a master of hounds right. in that, you know. So um, I've just always been that way. And, like, the Bellevue Club, I consider my second home club. Mm-hmm. I love the people down there. I go down and help them out all the time. And then I help four or five, six other clubs out there, too, yeah. in that. So. And then, of course, you know, I became board member for NPHA and then this year president. So this is your first year as president for the MPHA? Yes. I know you've been really active with the MPHA for a a few years because, you know, just following you on social media and and through the MPHA and different stuff, I mean, you're – you're, you, you've been involved there. I know you have. Yeah. Now, now they roped you in to being the president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but one year, and that's it, um, due to my health and stuff. So I told him, I said, you need to find somebody else mm-hmm. in that. Not that I don't want to, because I'd like to see NPHA move forward and stuff, but we need some younger people in there. Yeah. And, and that's all our clubs. We need the younger people to get more involved in the clubs, help out more. And um, it, the sport is kind of dying a little bit, you know, but we're hanging on yeah. in that. Um, and when I say dying, it's really not the competition part. It's the pleasure hunting part. With coon price, fur prices null and void, basically, people just aren't, aren't doing it. Well, that. you got that. You got the access issues. Yes. Uh, you know, places to hunt. Uh, actually, with COVID and things like that, we actually saw hunting numbers, sale of hunting and fishing license go up the last few years. Um, we're not sure if that was inflated numbers. Uh, there's, like we were talking about earlier, you have to verify every yes. every factoid that comes out anymore. Yeah. Uh, but the the. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is reporting a 30% spike. But that doesn't mean anything if you haven't got some place to hunt. Um, and coon hunters and houndsmen need property to hunt uh-huh. on. And you usually are not – there aren't very many of us out there that can afford to buy the property exactly. that we need. So uh, as we see hunting changing and, and different things and then restrictions, then – we're having problems. It's yeah. it's a it's an issue. Yep. And I'm fortunate where I grew up. Um, we have, I don't know the exact number, but almost 20,000 acres of public access property up within like a 40-mile range along this Maple River where mm-hmm. I grew up. Um, and I don't know how my mom and dad let me go out by myself all the time. Before I should have been, but I went coon hunting by myself. I yeah. went squirrel hunting. Uh, yeah. So it, it's different now, um, but I, I still have a lot of access to all that. So I'm not hurt that much by private property mm-hmm. in that. Yes, there's some private property, and i got to be careful. I know a couple times... My dogs get out of pocket and have been on some private that I didn't actually have permission. And I made sure I walked in the open to go get them. Mm -hmm. Two o'clock in the morning, uh, and some of the people don't even live in the area. Right. And with uh, trail cams nowadays, I don't try to hide. Yeah. You know, so I'll walk in, get my dogs, walk off. Does Michigan have a right to retrieve? Yes, it does. So, But even with that, you know, 
I don't, I don't want to make neighbors mad uh, or even people I don't know right. in that. You right, know? right. So. so in your work as the president of some of these organizations, the Michigan Coon Hunters, the MPHA, seems like you're always striving. You're not a guy that just sits back and and watches things happen or complains about things not happening. You're willing to you've always been that guy that's been willing to get in there and affect change. What's motivated you to do that? Well, cuz there's a lot of headaches in that. Yeah, um I'm going to give some credit to my military because I ended up being an instructor and I had to get up in front of people. Uh but going to the coon hunting part or hunting part Number one, I taught hunter safety for four or five years mm-hmm. at my local school and a couple other places. But every time I go to a club, an event like what we're at today, I always talk to people. Um, I talk to the coon hunters. Yeah. You know, uh, most of them are my friends. That, that, that's what keeps me a houndsman. I've met so many good people all over the Midwest you know, going to the Winter Classic Autumn Oaks. And I'm not just talking plot people, which I'm a plot hunter, but other breeds Mm -hmm. in that. But in my home state, I'll talk to the people. And, you know, some of the people that are dealing with our Department of Natural Resources, I I hate to say it, but they don't get out and talk to the average coon hunter. And You're talking about people that work for the Michigan DNR. No, no. The guys that are from other organizations that are trying to work with the DNR okay. and get them. Now, you know, they, they do a big picture, but I'm dealing with the coon hunters because mm-hmm. I've been basically a coon hunter. Yeah. I have bear hunted with dogs a little bit. Uh, fox hunted, you know, a long mm-hmm. time ago. I, you know, squirrel dogs and stuff like that, but... I'm basically a coon hunter Mm -hmm. in that. So I talk to those guys. They tell me what they want specifically. And, yes, the other organizations are really good, but they work for all the dogs. Mm -hmm. They haven't really got to that specific thing that the coon hunters wanted. And, you know, without bringing it up all the time, and it, it's not saying they're going to accomplish it, but people look at it and they're saying, well, I don't see nothing being done. Mm-hmm. And then when that, those guys talk to them, they, they let it go in one ear and out the other. So, so it's pushed me to talk to them. Then I go back and tell them, and it, it gets frustrating. Yeah. You know? And I hate politics anyway, but and it, you're it's a necessary <laughs> evil. I know. Yeah. So well, you want to affect change because you see a problem and you don't want to just be the guy that sits back and, and, right. and you want to be a part of the solution and not be the guy that just sits back right. and gripes and, about the problem. And again, just like me and you would disagreed on uh, the wind turbine thing, you know, yeah. I, I talked to some of the biologists a couple times and I disagreed with them because number one, if they would actually come out and go out with us, I think, numerous times yeah. with different people, they would see what effects it has and what effects it doesn't have and the overall big picture of that. But, like we also talked, 
it's a social thing. Right. And it, it's given the impression for the non-hunters about what we're doing. And sometimes we are our own worst enemy. I'll, I'll just kind of wrap this segment up. This one isn't yeah. exactly what we were talking about. But a lot of the problem that we are experiencing as a hunting group, we're talking about houndsmen, is we have allowed other people to take control of the narrative and define who we are and what we do. Because by nature, we don't want to be involved in that stuff. We don't want the drama. We don't want all that other stuff. We just want to go hunt our dogs. And we want to have spots to hunt our dogs. We're trying to concentrate on making the best dogs we can have to hunt. Right. And that takes a lot of time. And um, houndsmen, in, by nature, they'll get together and tell stories for days on end at events like this. But when it comes to uh, getting plugged into things that um, uh, are going to make a difference for their future, sometimes we don't get involved in right. those. And and it's good that we have people like you that are. So um, it's just our nature. Yeah, it, really it is. is. And, and the younger generation, they're just all about the dogs and going out. And they don't want that, you know, until it starts getting later in life. And it, it's just human nature. Right. That That's how it goes Yeah. in that. So. Well, you brought it up. You brought up. Uh, we started off talking about our military service, and uh, you credit your willingness to get involved to the military service. So tell us about your military service. Well, I'm going to start out with a long-haired kid, hot rodder, in trouble all the time. Yeah. The whole go to war, go to jail, it wasn't <laughs> quite that. But, and I was, I was actually on good terms with my local police, but, you know, I kept getting stopped. So I decided to have a change. So I joined the military. Mm -hmm. Now, I was about 23, 24 years old, so it was a little later. Right. And I joined and went through uh, basic training, AIT, and my first duty station is Fort Wainwright, Alaska. No kidding. I spent three and a half years in Alaska, and it was awesome. <laughs> you know, it was peacetime. Mm -hmm. It was 1980 to 1984, basically, right in there. Had a great time. Of course, being uh, lower ranking, not a lot of money for a state that costs a lot. But right. I did, you know, I that was my hunting duty station. Yeah. You know, I got a moose, two caribou, and a black bear up there. Wow. You know, I... Took a plot hound up there with me, raised him up, going to train him on bear. Yeah. Turn him loose on bear. He started to run it, and I realized the nearest road was 500 miles away. I put the leash on him, never turned him loose again. <laughs> but that was the start of my military career. I came off active duty, came back to Michigan where I grew up, and joined the National Guard. And, you know, I was just a part-timer, but then I got a full-time job with the National Guard as a unit administrator doing the payroll, doing supply, and that lasted for about seven, eight years. Went through a divorce, decided going to get away again, so yeah. I went back on active duty. And, of course, while I was there, uh, had to go back through school again, and this kid, and I'm not a kid, I was 39, right. 
decided he needs some extra money because he took a reduction in rank to go back on, I volunteered for jump school at 39 years old, and I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> I tried quitting twice in jump school, and they wouldn't let me. I ended up passing uh, and ended up going to Europe and ended up in Italy uh, in an airborne battalion combat team. Uh, 40 years old in the infantry. I'm like, what rank were you at 40? I took a reduction from E6 to E4 to go back on. Oh, my gosh. You didn't negotiate that deal very good. I had two weeks. Oh, no, I did God. not negotiate good at all. <laughs> so the good and the bad. The good is I didn't really get treated as an E4 when they found out how old I was and what I'd done. They thought you were some flunky that kept oh, yeah. demoted. Then the bad was the younger NCOs didn't like me, yeah. you know. So, but the officers did. Right. So I ended up getting some good jobs in there. Um, Alaska was my personal good duty station. Yeah. Italy was my military good duty station. Um, being in the Airborne, it gave me confidence. I mean, if you can look out the back of a helicopter or out the side of a door and jump, you're there, yeah. you know. Um, we went to Bosnia on a peacekeeping mission when that all was going mm -hmm. on. We did short missions. Yeah. Ours was two and a half months, almost three months in Bosnia. And then we went out. Right after that, um, right around Easter time, we got called up to do an embassy evac mission in Liberia, Africa. And I got on that. Yeah. And it basically was a two-week mission. One week we were in Sierra Leone staging. Next week we're at the embassy of Monrovia, Liberia. Mm -hmm. Now, it wasn't that bad. It was hot. Uh, but we stayed right on the compound, most of us. Uh, there was a civil war going on, so I'm not going to say it wasn't dangerous, but it wasn't that bad. We didn't get anybody hurt. Uh, and we also had 10th Group Special Forces with us and some Navy SEALs. So mm -hmm. it, it was a good deal. And then the Marines come in, relieved us, and we went out. Right. And we actually got called back uh, for two other missions, one to Burundi, which we never went, and one to the Congo. I really wanted to go to the Congo. Yeah. Yeah, it was right when the... Uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Yeah, well, it was right when the Ghost in the Darkness movie came yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. And I... I was one hour from getting on the plane to go, and the leader decided, you know, $10 million and everything here, I'll go to Portugal and leave, and mission ended. Yeah. And after that, you know, I finished up at Fort Hood on active duty, went to the Illinois Guard, did a six-month tour in Macedonia in support of the Kosovo, which is all peacekeeping. Mm-hmm. And there's two things about that mission. Number one, like I said, I was that long-haired, hot-rod kid, always in trouble with the police. Yeah. Uh, I did convoy escorts up into the country, and the Macedonian police would try to extort money out of us. <laughs> I got to tell the police where to go. Yeah. And then we ended up giving them coffee and donuts. <laughs> uh, the other thing is I'm kind of infamous the Marines were leaving to go to Greece. 
and we had to do traffic stop to let the convoy go through. I ended up stopping the Macedonian president's car. Got yelled at. <laughs> so I was kind of infamous there for a minute, and I let him go. Luckily, the president wasn't in the car. It was one of his high cabinet people. But. Yeah. And after that, um, I ended up in the reserves teaching a little bit. And the last nine years, basically, I was at Camp Atterbury uh, training troops for uh, the Afghan-Iraq war and other places and that. Getting them up to speed on deployment yep, and things yep, like that. Yeah, all the Guard and Reserve units. And uh, as I tell everybody, I spent 32 years in. I ended up with 18 and a half years in active duty. I fell in a pile of cow dung and come out smelling like roses, come out with an active duty retirement, then ended up with 100% disability. None of it combat. Uh, basically high blood pressure, then a couple of heart attacks. and You had you know. a couple of heart attacks? Yeah, I had two. Oh, my goodness. While you are on active duty or after oh, you Oh, no, out? no, afterward. Okay, because that would have been, been a disqualifier, I'd say. Yeah, the high blood pressure, I had that from active duty. Mm -hmm. Because of that, um, when I had the heart attack, the high blood pressure caused the heart attack, so that raised my disability up. I'm thinking that... Dealing with houndsmen and hound organizations probably isn't the best choice for you, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about raising your blood pressure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I very rarely have gotten mad yeah. at any of them. And, you know, with my hunting and when new guys come up and stuff, you know, now I've been competition hunting since the mid-'80s. Mm -hmm. And then with the breaks from the military. And I tell everybody... 95% of my competition hunts have been good. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I've had those 5% where, sure, we all have. you know, uh, so to me, I don't let it bother me. And I have never, never taken it serious. Mm -hmm. it, for me, it's about people like you, Steve Fielder, who I met through UKC, Todd Kellum, uh, all the other people all over the country and that. And even last year, I had three groups of people come from Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, and Virginia come up and stay with me and go coon hunting. Mm -hmm. and, that, and I take that from my late father, um, our plot hound. My dad would hunt with anybody he met in the woods. Yeah. He met a couple of good old boys from Tennessee, Kentucky. They got a ticket for hunting too soon up in Michigan. $300. Yeah. That was back in the 70s. They sold him a night champion plot. Now, he never got the papers, but that dog was our first plot, and he was, he was a good one. Yeah. And, that, and that's yeah. where I'm at. So uh, I want to I talk a little bit about um, set this up. I want to talk about these guys that go out there that – we're looking at a volunteer force now with our military. Uh, talk about their dedication and the things that they have to sacrifice 
besides the obvious, the injury stuff like that, but just stuff. You're 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 talking about spending 32 years in the military, maintaining that spirit for coon hunting and your hounds and things like that all the way through. But there had to be huge chunks of time where you had to sacrifice that for your active duty time and for your deployment time. How did you how did you cope with that? How did you handle that? Ah. Uh, yeah, and it's not just the hounds, too. I mean, you know, I was young when I first went in. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I ended up in Alaska. So I, I've always been an outdoorsman. Right. You know, my mom always said I was born in the wrong era, you know. Right. So to me, and that's why me and my brother never plan hunts together, because I don't plan. I just go. Yeah. And... uh almost got me in trouble up in Alaska because I went by myself when I shouldn't have been going by myself and right. stuff. But, you know, I just look forward to it. Uh, when I went to Italy, that was probably the hardest part because there was no hunting there, not mm-hmm. for me anyway. Mm-hmm. And But we did a lot of stuff up in Germany, and I talked to a few people up there. When I was in Bosnia, I actually got to be good friends with the Swedish major who, whose brother owned a hunting preserve in that. And I got invited. I never made it there. But so we talked. Um, and I knew two years wasn't that bad, you know, waiting right. in that. So um, that wasn't so bad. Then when I went to Texas to Fort Hood, uh, my commander actually took me on an archery hog hunt. Yeah. And that, you know, I was the only one that got a hog and the bow didn't even fit me, but I got lucky. So it was stuff like that. Plus, in Texas, I reverted from hunting to fishing. Okay. You know, because the weather's a lot different Mm -hmm. down there. Uh, So, and that was only a year and a half I was there. And then I come off active duty again, went back to Michigan and got started again. But it's been up and down. So has it kind of been like you started out? How many generations of hounds are you? have you bred? I'm you, not really a breeder, but um, my first dog that I, good plot hound, was my Timex dog. Mm-hmm. And I bred him a couple times right. in that and had one good pup that I had out of him and some of the others turned out. Um, and then after that, uh, when he passed away, that's when I kind of, I had the pup and should have won the winter classic with him, but Tony wasn't up on the rules and yeah. we had a good cast. This now, is the name place for excuses, Tony. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and because uh, it was the handler, it wasn't the dog. Uh, but then I went back on active duty, come back off, got started again, um, and then basically that's when I got mobilized for the war, the last mm-hmm. eight, nine years. Right. So I've given more dogs away, good dogs, than I've sold. That's kind of where I was And going. I never make money, and I don't try to. Right. Yeah. That's what I was, you know, trying to get at is showcasing that. And obviously we're not the only two veterans that are in house. Right. Uh, there are other career military people, and I wasn't career, but you were, and other people that have spent a career in the military that are still active in hounds. And, and especially when you're 
being bounced around and things like that, it's got to be tough. You know, the last several years of my life, I've got to enjoy the same line of hounds, what I wanted to do. And veterans don't, when you're, when you're in the military, you don't get that choice. No, no. And um, one individual I'll give an example is Ed Ranger, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, he's still on active duty. He's had challenges because, you know, if he gets deployed, who's taking care of his dogs? Right. So he's got to have a good network, a g- good buddy that will take care of his dogs He's at the end of his career now, so he's more stable, and he's, he's getting allowed to start that breeding program that he wants. And that's the biggest challenge with your active duty military guys right. and houndsmen. Right. Because unless they got a good support channel to take care of their dogs while they're gone, you know, it's just like me when I got mobilized. I couldn't see having the dogs sit in the pen, mm-hmm. so I gave them away. Right. One of them went to my good friend's Hoop and Tater Franklin, who took him to the world hunt. Yeah. So still had my name on him, but that yeah. was okay. So, yeah, there are challenges to you that. You know, if you're, if you're a deer hunter or if you like fishing or if you like, um, you know, going quail hunting, things like that, it's, it's easier to do that than it is when you're a houndsman. Yeah, because you just put your gun in the closet. Exactly, exactly. And it's got to be frustrating. <clears throat> Maybe not frustrating, but challenging. It's challenging to maintain that fire, but also doing your duty. Um, it, it presents some unique challenges in yeah. the, to the hound hunters out there that, that are also serving our country. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah. I mean, it... It puts them basically in vacation mode, even though it's not a vacation for them. Mm-hmm. It's a vacation, well, it puts them out of business, really, for having dogs Yeah. and do the dogs any justice. Yeah. So uh, they pretty much have to, if they get to a duty station, buy a finished dog, hunt it, and if they get mobilized, sell it get rid of it i'll tell you what when i when the recruiter came to the house you know i was at that age where i knew i was going to go in the marine corps but i also wanted to i also had hounds you know and i asked the recruiter and you know they always tell you the truth right yeah right so so (laughs) so that's why houndsmen wear hip boots (laughs) So I, I asked him, I was like, man, I like to coon hunt a lot. I'm, I, you know, am I going to be able to take hounds with me on active duty? I'm, I'm 17 years old. I don't know anything. You got, you got a gunnery sergeant sitting in front of you and in his, in his, in his uh, dress blue deltas looking sharp and stuff. And he's, I appeal, and, and he's like, you know, we got a lot of guys. Some of the Marine Corps bases are the best places to hunt. You know, so he painted this picture. that, And after I got in there, it's like there is no way. There's no way I could be doing that, yeah. especially when you're someplace like Camp Pendleton. There, I don't know what I would have even hunted out there. Maybe some wild hogs and and a mountain lion or something, yeah. you know. But shoot, there's no way you you know you're going to keep those. Yeah, dogs. and the thing is, like when I went to Alaska, plenty of opportunities, but I'm an E2, 
E3. I made my E5 there yeah, it's not just like before I left. Your schedule's not real flexible. And that's an expensive state. Right. You know, and I tried to do a lot of do-it-yourself stuff, and me and my brother came up, stayed with me, you know, and basically I looked at a map and said, we're going brown bear hunting down on the coast, and we're just going to take this trail here. We got down there. It was 5,000 foot straight up. <laughs> we turned around went back home. So, yeah. you know, when you don't have the funds, yeah, you may have the time, but you don't have the funds. Right. And, then, of course, the other thing is you could have the funds but not the time because the military comes first. Yes. You know, so. Yeah, if they would have wanted you to have a coonhound, they would have issued you Yeah, one. exactly. <laughs> and, you know, when I first got to Alaska, all our exercises were in the wintertime. So that was great. So all the hunting seasons, which are in pretty much May to sometime in October, you had a lot of free time. But if you don't have the cash to, you know, go to where you're going or whatever, that, that makes it a challenge. Right. I, I was very right. fortunate with what I got mm -hmm. up there. So, yeah. And that, that is always the big challenge. When, when, those first 10 years of your military career are, are a challenge financially, mm -hmm. especially if you're a married, you know, service member. Right. And that, so. Yeah. So we'll, we'll shift into something because this is a Memorial Day special. Right. How many, how many soldiers have you buried? Do you know? I want to say now. From my unit, personally, none. Mm -hmm. But the eight years that I trained troops, National Guard, Army Reserve, I want to say we lost probably 10 or 15. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, I wasn't involved in that. We, I did have one troop that one of my trainers who drowned in his car up in Indianapolis, coming to work. Hmm. So I, that's the only funeral I was ever involved in. Yeah. But about 10 of my troops that we trained went to Iraq or Afghanistan where had been killed in that. Of course, they went back to their home states right. in that. So right. that's personally it, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. How many military funerals have you, have you attended? Probably five. 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 And kind of kind of tell the audience what that's like to go to a military funeral. Uh, a couple of them were pretty heartfelt because, like the one that drowned there, um, I worked close with him, mm -hmm. you know. And we had another one. I wasn't that close to him. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, he'd been through one tour, and he fell off his bicycle and hit his head. Yeah. You know, so other than that, the other three or four funerals I went to were guys that had already been out, older guys, mm -hmm. you know. So um, it, it was just they were friends. Yeah. And, you know, my heart ached for them. But also the way the funeral was conducted, it gives you a good feeling. You know the yeah. military part of it, and yeah. that. So, yeah, we buried we buried some Marines, and um, um, one was a one was actually a pilot, 
that uh, Marine aviator, we don't call them pilots in the, yeah. in the Marine Corps. Uh, but uh, it, I think from the public side, when, when they see these military funerals, and it's hard for us too, because you're burying a brother. You're yep. burying, you're bur and it doesn't matter if you ever even served with that Marine. Um, same way with any branch, you know, you're burying a brother. And it's it's hard because a lot of times their wife will be there or their pregnant wife or their wife with yeah. especially these young guys, their their wife with their small kid and another one on the way and and anybody that's got any an empathetic bone in their heart, I mean that touches you and you think about that and it's rough. Um, but the the thing that I always tell people is emotional as that can be. They wouldn't want it to go out any other way. Right. You know, that's that's what we do. And I don't want to make this sound self-serving with us be, both being veterans, but I think a lot of times the whole story doesn't get told about, about you know, some of the sacrifices that are made. And we're, the, the, the saying in the Marine Corps is, I'm willing to die for my country if I have to, but my main mission is to make the other guy die for his. Exactly. So, <laughs> so, but it happens. And that whole story doesn't get told that we understand, a lot of times we understand those risks when we go in. And um, uh, it's, to accept that is a different mindset than most people can fathom. Yep. And it, it's, it's hard, and in 32 years, I tell people, because it, it's just like when I was going through jump school. I got this guy that's just, oh, yeah, you know, he's all pumped up. We're going to jump out. And he looks at this little guy over here. His eyes are this big. He's scared. And he starts making fun of him. Yeah. Now, I'm 40 years old, 39. I looked at the guy. I said, I'm scared, too. This is not normal. This is not natural. You're right. And this is what I tell everybody. You got those guys that puff their chest out, that sit there and brag about they're going to do this and that. I tell them, you watch the guy that's quiet. Mm -hmm. That's the guy you can trust. That's the guy that's probably going to save your life. Yeah. The guys that brag a lot, they're trying to pump themselves up because they really are scared. Yeah. And it's how you control that fear and... It's what you put into it, um, and it's about your brothers and sisters there, yeah. you know. And I've dealt with and, and uh, Air Force, Marines. I got, got put in the Marine barracks when that's I was probably in Germany. Good, that's, that's probably a good oh, experience yeah. for you. Yeah, and the sergeant major told me, you need to watch that guy there. And I'm like, okay, yeah, thank you. But anyway, uh, like. I got put in charge of. You wouldn't have graduated. You you wouldn't have retired as a master sergeant. No, if you had no. Have spent that time in there. I know. But anyway, <laughs> they got you squared away in a yeah. couple of weeks. When we went to put our equipment on the Air Force C-130, C-140s, and that, our Army payload guys would come up. You got to do this, this, and this. I'd stand there. They'd leave. The Air Force guy'd come up, and I'd say. Tell me what I need to do here. He'd tell me different. Oh, yeah. That's who I listen to. Yeah. You know. Air uh, Force is way more laid back. They're like. Yes. 
dude, just throw your hey, dude, just throw your just throw your junk on the plane. We don't care. Yeah, you know. And the company Gunny and the Marine Corps, it's like we're going to line our seat bags up. we and when you line a seat bag up, everything's got to be covered in a line and straight lines and all yeah. this stuff. Now they won't let us have the window seats. You know, because then the Air Force has to clean all the windows after we're from lick marks on the windows. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's it's amazing the different attitudes. But everybody does their job, and that's what has made exactly. That's what's made us. Yeah, and the know? same thing. You know, taking the Army. Now, my first duty station was aviation, helicopters, uh, Chinook. Uh, Hueys and 58s. So I've, I did a lot of flying. My boss even let me fly for 30 minutes till I hit the wrong button yeah. on the intercom and <laughs> in that. But uh, then I ended up in an aviation guard unit. So I spent 14 and a half years aviation. I know the difference. They're a different style of military, right? Both active duty and Guard. Oh, it was different. It was different from like your Marine Corps infantry units to your yep. air wing, yep. to your motor transport. Yes. You know, it was like, I should have gone on motor T. Yeah. You know, I should have been over here driving around in trucks, yep. and going then, and picking up the guys that are out there humping all this stuff. And then I end up in the airborne infantry. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, oh my goodness. But it paid off because. When I had to deal with the aviation, I knew what to do. Right. And also, I learned the difference between Army Rangers, regular Army Airborne Infantry, and Special Forces. Right. To include the SEALs. I'd much rather deal with the Special Forces and the SEALs than Army Rangers because they're more laid back. My platoon sergeant looked at me one day when the C7SF come up. I'm only an E5. He was calling me by my first name. Mm-hmm. My platoon sergeant looking at me like, who the heck are you, you know? Right. But that's the way those guys were. They would sit there and ask me before they'd ask my platoon sergeant. And part of that come because, you know, when I took that reduction and then worked myself back up, you know, mm-hmm. I was older yeah. than that. So... I I really had a wild military career from Sounds one like spectrum. I mean, you know, like I said, taking a bus from E6 to E4, going all the way back. I pissed the sergeant major off. Otherwise, I might have got that final rank. But right. I was 56 years when I, when I quit, yeah. and it was time. Yeah. You know, I was getting old. <laughs> so. I, I, I know what you mean. So um, let's talk about a little bit about veterans organizations. And houndsmen are among the most patriotic group of hunters that I know. Uh, Almost every hound event I've ever been to, uh, there's a prayer. There's a they're playing the national anthem. Uh, They're just patriotic. You walk around the grounds and you see flags on on vehicles and things like that. You, people people are appreciative of our military in the hound, commu- hound hunting community. Yes, they are. And I think they are in the hunting community as a whole. But I've um, the hound hunters, are, I feel like they take it a, a, a notch above. Well, you see it more because we have big events like mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. you know, and 
you know, I'm pretty much a United Kennel Club guy, but I help our guys with PKC too. And I think those organizations support the military. You know, I know every UKC event I go to, they're always saying prayers. They're always um, playing the national anthem mm -hmm. and everything at the big events. So, yeah. And, and a lot of the average folks, well, first off, they've either had somebody in the military, they've been in yes. the military, or known somebody. Right. And I have to say, because I grew up during the Vietnam era, that the whole attitude has changed since this last, well, 9-11. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how many times I had lunches bought for me and stuff like that, and people come up and thank me, you know, right. and that. Or police officers let me off when I yeah. get caught, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's, it, it's different now. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, the hound community really is more patriotic. Yeah. They are. How can houndsmen support our military veterans? What, is a, what are some things that you would tell people that they could, they could do directly, how they could get involved? Well, the one thing, and I was going to try to do it myself, but like anything else, you know, you, you get pulled. Mm -hmm. I was going to try, and I actually talked to UKC to do like a four-club or five-club benefit hunt. It's one hunt, but benefit. You, okay, you guys need... Okay. Yeah, we can talk over you. All right. Yeah. All set? Go ahead. Yeah, so I never completed it. And what I was trying to do, because uh, Wounded Warriors has the dogs mm -hmm. for, to help the wounded vets in that. And I was thinking of all the money would go to the Wounded Warrior program. Mm -hmm. Um but clubs could do benefit hunts like that. Um, like our state association, we used to do a cancer hunt. And all that money went to St. Jude's, you know. And it didn't count against our seven hunts mm -hmm. for the year. Right. And that. So that's some of the things they can do. And I've actually seen um, posts where some of the clubs throughout the country have, have done some of those benefit hunts for mm -hmm the military and stuff. Yeah, and we who's your tree dog used to host an event called yes. Call to Duty yep. for our warriors. Yeah. So and uh, it was directly in relation with a I would I with with a veterans organization that was helping returning veterans. And I you know, we talk about we talked about the the funeral side of it in the active duty. But a lot of these organizations take an organization like we support on this podcast Freedom Hunters. I've, I've hunted with so many of these guys now, and um, at first when everybody shows up, you know, it's, you know, you're trying to get to know each other, and you spend a couple of days with these guys. By the third day, they're telling you about, this hunt saved my life. It saved my life. Yeah. He, he said, I've been sitting on the couch. I have one guy tell me, he's like, I've been sitting on the couch for the last six months um, contemplating taking my own life 
I, di I didn't know how to fit back in. I don't know how to, you know, I was drinking. I was doing drugs. I was doing, trying to, trying to cope. And I saw the opportunity to get involved here. And he goes, I think you've saved my life. And now they're coming back and volunteering and sharing that story. And houndsmen can get involved on that and, and be involved in programs like that, that that are going to save people's lives. And our, our most valued, treasured, national treasure is our military veterans. And I yep. can't think of a, a, a more worthy cause to be involved in. Yeah. And I've noticed, and I tried finding out in Michigan who the rep was, they're, like each state has a veteran hunt swap light. Mm. And I can't remember what the title was of it. And I never got a response in Michigan, but I see other places that are doing that. Yeah. Um, and just like I was telling you, I got contacted for that hunt out in Wyoming, which was just awesome for me. Sure. You know, um, uh, go out west, you know, do an antelope elk hunt. Uh, it, it basically raises my spirits up because sure. right now, I mean, with the cancer I've got, it, it drags me down, mm -hmm. you know, but I'm fortunate I don't let things drag me way down. Right. And I got my grandkids and his friends who basically come out and love running my dog so I can sit in the truck and listen. Is your cancer service related? No. Okay. No. Well, I can't say that because I always had acid reflux. It's esophageal. So, can I say it was my acid reflux? Can I say it was this? Can I say it was my smoking mm -hmm. or my diet? No, I can't say that. Yeah. You know, both my mom and dad died from cancer. My dad from stomach cancer. My mom from lung cancer. So, I don't blame it on any one thing. Yeah. You know, just like my heart attack. That pretty much was my diet and doing stuff and, and probably stress. Because yeah. in the military, and heck, even with your dogs, there's stress. Right. Life is stress. So um, it's how you handle it sometimes. And for the most part, I always thought I dealt good with it. Mm -hmm. But like anything else, I had my moments too. Yeah. You know, when you got a sergeant major breathing down your neck and, you know, things aren't quite going the right, you know, it's like it gets bad. Yeah. And... Do you know Do you know any veterans that have that have committed suicide, taken their own lives? That's, Two. That's redundant. Not not real close friends, but two. I had two in two different units. One in two different units. Was it after they came home? There was, was no conflict at that time, uh, but I don't know exactly why they did it. Um, I can tell you I went through a period, and it, it really wasn't military-related, but where life just imploded on you. And it's hard to explain to somebody, and I know that's how some of these guys feel when they come back because they're trying to wind down. Mm -hmm. they're tr they've seen things that you shouldn't see, you know, the normal person shouldn't see. And it goes into their head. And, you know, some things will help somebody, but it won't help another person. In my case, I went to the bar. Mm -hmm. 
I don't drink much. I yeah. drink a beer or two now and then. Yeah. I talk to all my old friends. It got me through it. Well, everybody in Michigan goes to the bar. Well, I know, but, <laughs> uh, you know, so. There's bars at the, at the trailhead for every snowmobile. Oh, exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, so what will help one person won't always help another. I think from what, from what I've been told and from the studies that I've seen, and different things. I never felt like that I had anything, you know, that was post-traumatic. Um, and maybe that is a sign of post-traumatic stress, you know, PTSD, I, saying that you never felt that. There have been times when, you know, I've been, uh, felt more anxiety than I thought I should have uh, since, and that was after after discharge. But But from talking to some of these guys that, maybe have shown the courage to say, hey, I need help. They've all told me it's one of those deals, like they come back and who are they going to share that with? They're going to tell their mom that they had to shoot somebody in the face. Yeah. You know, they can't tell their mom that. You know, they're going to tell their girlfriend. There's a big risk there when you start exposing some of the evil things that, not evil, some of the brutal things that you had to do to either save yourself or save your friends. Exactly. And there just isn't. So we're, we're walking around in these capsules in a world that we don't feel comfortable sharing the experience with because we don't want to look at, be looked at as freaks or monsters or how could you do that. Yeah. And that's what really makes people start internalizing things. And then when you start internalizing, you can't get away from it. Yeah. Or that person that's more comfortable there than back mm -hmm. home in that and it's always looking I mean my youngest son had a classmate he ended up going on four tours his parents were worried about him he just kept volunteering yeah and you can only press your luck so much yeah you know and some people deal with things better than others I can't say quite for sure but I like animals more than people, so you wouldn't know that. that could, time. I, I know, but you're one of the most upbeat, upbeat people. Oh yeah, you're you're very positive. You know, you're talking to people at this event. I just had a similar discussion with another guy. You know, same people are. It's for me. I do this every week. You know, sit down and talk to people. Sit down and talk. To, that is not a natural thing for Chris Powell. Oh, to be engaging, to talk, talk. to people. You know, I'm usually the guy that, that likes to sit back and it's hard for me to get in the truck to drive to an event like this. Uh, I'd rather stay home. I'd rather, oh. st I'd rather stay home. Uh, at the end of my little dead-end road that sits three-tenths, there's a reason why I live where I live, yeah. three-tenths off a mile off the main road, you know, back in the woods type thing. And um, I think that's all, all goes back to, you know, some of the military and law enforcement type yep, stuff. That's exactly. You know, so you take those two things together. But, yeah, I, I just really wanted to, to boil this down and, and maybe peel back some, expose a little nerve here. Yeah. And let people understand uh, without being self-serving about it or saying, hey, you guys, everybody really should support veterans because we're veterans. That's not what we're saying. No. I'm not trying to get that message there. No, and when I lived down in Indiana, when 
I was at Camp Atterbury, TSC would give me a discount. Now, I never asked for it, but they knew I was, of course, I was in uniform half time. If they give it to me, fine. If they didn't, oh well. Yeah. No problem. You know, I was never about, you got to give me. Right. But when I went to 100%, you know, I looked, it's like my one plate on my one vehicle mm -hmm. is lifetime. You know, the other one's five years. Yeah. Um, You're talking about 100% disability, state of Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Gives you a lifetime plate. Yep. And the other one's for five years. And then they, they wrote off my student loans. Wow. You know, now I didn't ask for it, but that was there. Right. So I took it. Right. My hunting license. And I think that's it, something that, something that you know, the government is run, still, I got to be careful. Yes, yes. <laughs> government is supposed to be run for the people and by the people. So by being involved in being an American, we have allowed things like, for me, my kids, since I was a veteran, could go to any state college tuition free. And just because I was a military veteran. Right. So thank you, America. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yep. Um, that helps yep. a lot. Well, it, you know, when I got ready to retire, before I retired, President Bush and Congress passed for the reservists for every 90 days you were on active duty, they took 90 days off your 60th birthday because I retired a reservist. Yeah. 60 is when you're supposed to collect your retirement. Mm -hmm. Well, because I did eight years, they took part of that. I ended up collecting when I was 56. Yeah. Then when I hit 60, my um, TRICARE health insurance, my first heart attack, I paid $2,000. They covered everything. Mm -hmm. So the benefits, you know, for somebody... I don't want to say sacrificing, but joining the military and committing to 20 years, 30 years, you know, um, it pays off. Mm -hmm. It pays off, yeah. you know. So, and I've went to VA hospitals. I don't use them anymore because my TRICARE is so good mm -hmm. in that. But, yeah, it's, it, it's been good for me. Right. And the hound people. My life has been good. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. So. Good deal, man. Love my dogs. All kinds. I got Beagle. I got Lycas. I got Plot Hounds. I got a Cur. Got Junior. Junior. Junior, yeah. Junior. I'm pretty sure, is a big country blue tick. How old is Junior? <laughs> 13. You? Over no, 13. He can't be a big country dog. Then he might have come out of Bo Cephas, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh. He's a shaggy white dog. We're not sure what he is. It's the only I'm... pet dog I've ever had, and he's my best buddy. So, yeah. well, Tony, I appreciate you taking time driving oh, down. Oh, I appreciate and it. Me here, I really do. Sounds good, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you.